Welcome to this episode of the Business of Practice podcast, where we focus on the financial and human sides of equine veterinary medicine. In this episode, Amy Grice, VMD, MBA, is going to talk to us about employment agreements. Dr. Grice practiced for more than 20 years before starting veterinary business consulting. She advises veterinarians and practice owners on a wide variety of projects and challenges. The Business of Practice podcast is brought to you by Decor Veterinary Products. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Grice. Hi, it's so nice to be here. Well, this is a very important topic on employment agreements. And I guess my first question to get you started is, why should we have written employment agreements, whether you're the owner of the practice hiring someone or someone being hired? Well, you know, it's so important to have expectations spelled out clearly, and that really prevents misunderstandings, disagreements. You know, as we get older, and even sometimes when we're younger, we don't have the best memory of the conversations that we have. And so having things in writing can really help, um, you know, when you're saying, gosh, what did we say about that? And you can go and look it up. It really protects both practice owners as well as associates. And what do you think are the key elements of an agreement that both sides of the agreement should should have in there and cover? Well, the first is really the length or the term of the agreement or the contract. Um, some of them have a distinctive term, whether that's one year, two years, three years, but others go on in perpetuity until a change is made. And so that's one of the important elements uh, another would be uh, compensation, uh, benefits that are going to be provided, um, duties uh, that are going to be required, um, whether that includes emergency duty or not, um, the schedule to a certain degree. But what's important to remember is that these are, um, because it's a, a legal document, a lot of times these things are sort of in generalities. And so an associate looking at their first contract might be a little confused when it might say hours that are typical for the industry and think, oh my God, what am, what am I getting in for? But um, gosh, when you think, at it, think about it from the owner's point of view, what if they get kicked by a horse and have a broken leg but their contractual agreement with their associate is so many hours or so many days a week or so many emergency shifts. And yet all of a sudden they need to ask that person to step up temporarily for the practice. And so that's why many times these will not be super, super specific, um, but will actually have more general language. Um, you know, uh, one of the important things is a non-compete clause, and we can talk a little bit more about that because that's a big topic. And then also under what conditions termination would take place and what that would look like. Well, let's go back because I know one of the issues in our industry, especially with uh, young veterinarians starting out, is compensation. So how do owners and new vets and maybe it, it, I'm talking about new vets out of vet school now. I realize veterinarians may change practices farther into their careers, but mm -hmm. new vets is what I'm talking about. 
So how do they negotiate compensation that's fair to both? Well, generally, when a new veterinarian is entering the equine veterinary space, the owner of the practice realizes that that newly graduated veterinarian is not probably going to be able to produce new amounts of revenue for the practice for several years sometimes. They will be sharing work that that the, the owner will be sharing work or other associates will be sharing work that normally has been done by others. And then as the practice grows, that associate will grow into uh, attracting new clients, bringing in new business through perhaps skills that they have that others in the practice don't have. And they will find themselves um, suddenly being able to make more production than when they first began. And so an owner is investing in a new veterinarian and actually taking some of their profits to support that new veterinarian's salary for their first year and sometimes two years. So compensation is generally um, a salary or a base salary with the opportunity to earn additional monies when the revenue production um, is over and above what would support that salary. Um, occasionally, you'll see people being paid uh, straight commission, but that's unusual. Um, usually what I'm seeing these days is simply a salary or a salary with a production bonus. Okay. And when you start talking about duties and work schedules, and I'm going to include emergency work schedules in there, what is it that both sides should be looking for to negotiate a contract that's good for both of them? Well, generally, you want to have some balance between the uh, associates and the owners of the practice with regard to who is taking care of um, emergency duty. And some of the practices have gotten um, used to being able to hire associates whenever they wanted when there was a you know, a big supply of associates, but there's not anymore. And so having sort of an equal distribution of the responsibilities of emergency duty can be important. Um, you know, just thinking back to our, our previous little question about uh, compensation, uh, one of the things I always encourage people to do is to negotiate for some additional um, monies for perhaps... Um, part of the emergency fee, not the whole not the whole bill for the emergency, but the fee for getting out of bed at 2 a.m. and going somewhere. And so if you have a particularly bad weekend and you see 12 or 13 cases and you're just working, you know, dawn to into the dark for two days in a row and you see lots of cases, doesn't it feel better if you know that you're counting up, oh, that's $100 every time I do an emergency, maybe that weekend you made thirteen or $1,400 extra dollars. It really helps um, to keep your attitude feeling a little more chipper about it. Um, you know, there's also uh, sometimes at some practices a difference in compensation for revenues earned for, say, selling uh, pharmacy items, retail, selling a bag of vet wrap or some uh, trimethoprim sulfa pills that you either 
get no commission on that at all, or you get a smaller commission because with online pharmacy sales so prevalent now, uh, practices cannot afford to be paying a big percentage on those retail pharmacy sales. And so that's another little little thing to mention about compensation. And what seems to be the norm now for vacation and other types of leave, including maternity leave, that equine practices are offering now? So it depends on the practice. Um, you'll see a wide variety of amount of time that is um, paid time off, basically, or time allowed away from the practice, depending on how the compensation works. Um, most most practices do not have formal paid maternity leave, but most practices um, allow a period of time for veterinarians to be absent from the practice while keeping their job open and waiting for them to come back to. And these practices also typically continue to pay for benefits like a health insurance policy while that person is out on unpaid leave. And most will allow um, a, an associate veterinarian to save up, say, vacation days or sick days, um, even from a previous year, if they're planning a pregnancy, to try and get a bank of paid days um, to help them a little bit. Um, you know, depending on the size of the practice, the industry um, in some multi-doctor practices will offer you know, somewhere between two and four weeks of vacation, depending on the uh, number of years that veterinarian has worked for the practice, um, perhaps five sick or personal days, um, and some time uh, to go to continuing education without eating into their uh, vacation or personal time. You had mentioned benefits, and you have done several articles for Equimanagement and given talks in, throughout the veterinary industry. And I'm going to list some of the benefits that you have mentioned that could be covered in uh, an agree, uh, a contract. Professional liability insurance, professional licenses, memberships such as to AAEP, continuing education, health insurance, disability insurance, a retirement plan, sick and personal days, discounted services, and maternity leave. So when you're negotiating a contract, whether you're the employer or the employee, how do you determine which of these is most important that, that you work on in your contract and what are you seeing in contracts these days? Well, one of the things to remember is that when an, an employee, a veterinarian, an associate, has to pay for these things out of after-tax dollars, it really diminishes their, um, their pay, their compensation. And so the more benefits that the practice can offer, um, which are tax deductible to the practice, um, the better off it is for the associate. Um, there used to be a standard sort of business management percentage of total gross revenue produced by an employee veterinarian that should not be exceeded by all the expenses of their employment. Okay, so that would include their salary, payroll taxes, workman's comp, and all of their benefits. 
And the previous figure was 25%. All of those costs should not exceed 25%. Because we now have really a, a shortage of people coming into equine veterinary medicine, uh, Marsha Hankey, Dr. Hankey, uh, reported at the 2020 AAEP convention that that, uh, that amount has gone up to 28%. And so we're seeing practices needing to use some of their uh, profits to support more uh, compensation for veterinarians. And so if you have a practice that provides very few benefits, then if they are providing um, compensation of a percentage of revenue production, that percentage is going to be higher. It's going to be closer to 28%. The more benefits are offered, the lower that percentage will be. So you might see somebody who's got a nice health insurance plan, a, a $1,500 CE benefit, um, uh, their PLIT, their uh, memberships, and uh, those licenses are all paid. You might see that person um, being offered, say, 24 or 25% of their gross revenue production as their, uh, as their production um, bonus amount, basically. Um, and so the practice that doesn't offer any of that is going to need to compensate those people much more highly because they now have to pay for those things which are necessary out of after-tax dollars. Decra Veterinary Products is proud to sponsor Equimanagement's The Business of Practice podcast. Decra's equine product line includes Osphos, Clotinate Injection, Orthocon Vet IREP 10 and 60, Osteocon PRP, Equidone Gel, Thumperidone, the Vetivex line of parenteral fluids, Ficox EQ Joint Supplement, and a comprehensive line of topical dermatologic products. The recent addition of Zymeta, Diaperone Injection, further expands Decra's equine offerings. For more information about Decra's products, please visit decra-us.com. And I know one of the uh, things that was discussed at an AEP meeting was vehicles, because if a, a new associate has to come out and supply their own practice vehicle, that can really be tough on them in the first few years. So what are you seeing in contracts today about vehicle use? Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. Um, Dr. Colon uh, did a really nice uh, presentation at that AAEP meeting and had a lot of very interesting information about that. Um, certainly, if an associate veterinarian chooses a fairly fuel-efficient, smaller vehicle that does not have high costs, both insurance costs, gas costs, repair costs, and initial purchase costs, they can actually do better taking a mileage reimbursement. But um, if they have a big gas guzzling, you know, giant three quarter ton pickup truck or suburban like I like to drive, <laughs> um, well, you know, you're much more comfortable, you're in it all damn day you know, you want it to be cushy because you spend most of your life in it, right? In those cases, um, it's better for the associate to be provided a vehicle. Um, and so it really depends on what the vehicle is. 
when I see uh, practices um, having contracts and the ma vast majority provide a vehicle. Um, and I think in part that can come down to in a bigger uh, multi-doctor practice to branding that you want to be able to control what the brand identity, the appearance of your doctor showing up. You don't really want it, them showing up necessarily in, you know, an old Toyota with the, with the tailgate held on with duct tape or, you know, um, it's a brand identity thing. So I see most practices providing vehicles and it is a, uh, an expense that they can write off. So a lot of people coming out of vet school have never really had to negotiate a contract before. And some, I've, I've heard some of them even say, I didn't know I was supposed to negotiate. I thought this is what they offered and this, I could either take it or leave it. So what is your advice to not only the veterans coming out of school, the new associate, but to the practices to help this negotiation work out to the best of both parties? Well, especially now when it's hard to attract and retain associates, I think that practice owners need to approach contract negotiation um, as a truly win-win kind of conversation. So they need to find out what is most important to that associate in keeping them happy. And that really means asking them, you know, what is the most important thing? Uh, is it uh, compensation? Is it time off? Is it professional um, skill acquisition? Um, the ability to do the kinds of work that excite you? Um, finding that out ahead of time and trying to craft uh, an employment agreement that allows for everybody's needs is probably the most important thing for the practice owner to think about. For those that are coming out and having their first experience with an employment agreement, I think the best piece of advice I can give is this is a negotiation. You have a lot of power. Um, if there's something in there that you really um, feel uncomfortable about, you need to ask about it, talk about it, and remember it's a conversation between two adults that neither one is under pressure to sign, okay? It's, um, it's like fair market value, which is, you know, the, the price that a willing buyer and a willing seller come to, okay, when nobody is under any pressure. So, the same thing is true about your, you know, your contract. And I think speaking of that, um, I, I have had some veterinarian friends who, you know, had a one year or two year or whatever contract and that came and went. And the owner of the practice just, they never renegotiated a contract. So basically the veterinarian was just working. And they were working over under the old terms, but there was nothing in it that said, you know, after the 12 month, 24 month, whatever was in the contract. And so what what does that mean? When do you revisit your contract, whether it's a one year, three year in perpetuity? I mean, what what are you looking for to renegotiate? I think it's really important that in every practice, no matter what the length of term of the employment agreement 
that the employer and the employee sit down once a year and talk about whether both of their needs are being met, whether both are satisfied um, with what's what's happening. Because I think a lot of times when those conversations do not take place, resentments build. Um, people listen to, they, they believe what they're thinking and everything you think is not true. <laughs> and so it's so important to have those conversations um, about what your what your dreams are for your career that you that you really want to go um, get certified in acupuncture or you really want to attend ISELP and you know or the owner thinking gosh I really want to stop doing so many emergency shifts I'm feeling old and tired um, having those conversations is so important and they should happen at a minimum once a year. And that's a perfect opportunity to talk about changing the expectations of the employment agreement. And what else in your experience working with young veterinarians and with practices would you want to bring up about employment agreements? The non-competes. Non-compete clauses are um, creating a lot of trouble in the industry and, you know, it, it comes from many different sides. One is that this practice owner who has invested in a new graduate, taken part of their profits in order to support that salary while that person is getting up to speed, you know, honestly, you know, feels terrible if that person, you know, up and leaves after they've invested in them and had, have never had a chance to recoup their investment. And so from their point of view, having a non-compete seems like incredibly reasonable. Um, on the other hand, you have folks coming into the equine industry that have high educational loans. They often are female and have a spouse that has, you know, gotten a job. They've had, you know, maybe bought a house. And suddenly, if things aren't working out at that particular employment, they're kind of stuck. Um, if their non-compete is of a great distance or um, a long term or there's no opportunity to buy it out. And, and what are their choices? They go to small animal medicine. They don't really have a lot of choices. And so it can break people's dreams um, and they can feel trapped and like they have no other choice but to uh, leave equine practice. And that's what we're trying not to do is have people leave equine practice. And so um, we recently had a round table about employment contracts for AAEP and an attorney, Frank Muggia from New Jersey, he works with Harris Beach, um, talked with us about non-competes. And he said that when judges look at these, they want to protect the goodwill of the practice. Um, but they won't give a protection to a practice that that practice couldn't get in the marketplace. So they feel, most judges feel that to reestablish goodwill after somebody leaves is, you know, no more than six months. Because if you have been in practice a long time, you have a strong brand, just because this person has been here, it shouldn't be hurting your business so much. Um, 
most non-competes that will hold up in court are those that utilize um, current clients or current uh, particular stables rather than a radius uh, of distance. And so current clients is uh, the type of non-compete that's going to be much more um, enforceable. The other thing that I'm seeing more and more is that uh, practices are providing an opportunity for associates to buy out their non-compete contractually in the employment agreement if they find that they need to uh, or wish to leave the practice. And speaking of buyouts, what part of the agreement should be in writing in this employment contract to allow that veterinarian at some point to buy into the practice? Well, in my opinion, there should not really ever be a promise of buy-in in a contract. And, I, and that could be a controversial statement because so many associates have been promised eventual buy-in. And then when the rubber hits the road, that owner doesn't want to share their profits. They want to continue profiting off the associate. And that is when associates get fed up and leave. But it is, it's not something that you want to put into a contract because a bad partnership is like a bad marriage. And so do you really want to contractually be obligated to marry someone that you actually don't even at that point even really like? Probably not. Um, but there again goes to those annual conversations where the associate says, it's very important to me to be an owner of a practice. When do you foresee me being able to buy in? Because I would like to own 25% of this practice by the end of 2022, or I'm going to really feel the need to look at other options. You know, the, those sort of very clear, honest, transparent conversations have to take place. And they have to have dates attached to them, not this, you know, in two years. And then in two years, it's in in two years. And two years later, it's in two years. <laughs> you know, that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, is there... Any recommendation to have an attorney, a CPA, or someone else review your contract before you sign it? Absolutely. It's, it's incredibly important to, especially those that are dealing with their first employment agreement, to have um, someone have a look at it. Um, very best case scenario, you have an attorney look at it, um, or somebody knowledgeable, a mentor, um, a business consultant, you know, I look at a bunch of them for, for new graduates because, um, you know, sometimes it's very quick and simple and, and, and sometimes it is alarming. <laughs> it's alarming um, that people have actually obviously written their own agreement without any attorney's help. And it's very easy to say, do not sign this thing at all. I mean, it, it, it's scary what I see sometimes. But yes, having help is a very good idea. 
And what other points would you like to cover on uh, agreements? Um, you know, really, I think that um, agreements are a wonderful way to set expectations, but they do not take away the need for ongoing, clear and honest communication on a regular basis between employer and employee. They both need to understand what the other one's um, vision is for the future, um, what their dreams are, what they hope that will happen so that they can plan a future together or have a more um, uh, sort of thoughtful um, way to part ways if that's what's going to happen. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Grice. As usual, some very on-spot, on-topic uh, recommendations that I think both sides of a, a contract agreement will find benefit from. And we want to thank our audience for joining us on the Business Practice Podcast, and a big thanks to our sponsor, Decra Veterinary Products. Please visit equimanagement.com or your favorite podcast network, such as iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, to hear every episode of the Business of Practice. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to me at kbrown at equinenetwork.com. The Business of Practice podcast is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC. 